from St. Matthew's Gospel, Jesus said, Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, everybody. This past summer, I read, or I should say started to read, a biography about Ulysses S. Grant. I've been talking about this for a few months because it's taken me a while to read it. U.S. Grant, Ulysses S. Grant. You know the S is made up. It's not really part of his name. Uh, that's another story. But he came to be known as Unconditional Surrender Grant. And the reason that's important is U.S. Grant, I mean, whether you like him or not, it's true that he was the man who defeated Robert E. Lee in the Army of Northern Virginia. From, he saved the Union. He later on became President of the United States of America. He was arguably one of the most powerful and influential and effective presidents in all of history. By the way, if you didn't know this, at the time, the media hated him. <laughs> Lincoln, too, for that matter. You think that politics are bad today. Go back and look at the situation during the election of 1864 between McClellan and Lincoln. Woo, you ain't seen nothing yet, I'll tell you that. Makes your head spin. The point, though, I want you to understand about today is that U.S. Grant, Ulysses S. Grant, is a hero. He is to me, anyway. I admire him for his courage, for his strength, for his conviction, for his unconditional surrender, Grant. But what you might not know is that before the war, U.S. Grant was a great big nothing burger. He was a nobody. U.S. Grant was a guy from Illinois who worked on his, in his father's leather shop, and everyone kind of felt sorry for him. He was a, an alcoholic. He was a bit of a loner. He suffered what they called then melancholy, probably clinical depression. He had a lifelong battle with all sorts of demons, alcohol and inferiority and a lack of self-worth. Apparently, he wasn't a very good speaker either, not terribly quick on the draw. Grant, in my mind, though, is, from, and there's lots of examples, but he's one of the biggest ones for me. He's the classic example of an emergent leader. The underdog who rises from nowheresville, the underdog who's basically a, a person of no account, who moves from being nobody to greatness. Kind of like this Jewish guy from Nazareth that we worship today as our king. Our, our focus today, today is the feast of Christ the King, Christus Rex. Sounds so much better in Latin, right? Christus Rex. The feast of Christ the King. It is the last Sunday in the church's year. Next Sunday is Advent 1. The church's year begins next week. So this is the last, this is the uh, New Year's Eve, if you will. This is the great celebration of Christ's ministry. Christus Rex. Every year, the last day of the church's year is celebrated with the victory, the greatest victor of all time, where we worship Christ, our King. What does that mean? All right, Rodriguez, I get it. Christ the King, okay, fine. What is a king and what does he do? Well, what is a king? What does he do? He saves and he protects. I'm going to talk about that today. What is a king? And what does he do? He saves and he protects. So what is a king? You know, part of the problem with the idea of Christus Rex is that Americans, we don't like kings, man, right? I mean, our whole nation was birthed in rebellion against a king. Historically, 
Americans do not trust centralized authority. And in fact, our whole political system is meant to foul things up. If you don't know this, I mean, you ever notice we have like the legislative branch and the executive branch, and then we have the judiciary, and they can never really seem to get anything done? That's not a bad thing, by the way. It's, it's kind of by design, because the founding fathers knew, man, if you put absolute power in someone's hands, you put too much power in one spot, you know the old adage, absolute power corrupts absolutely. People get frustrated all the time that Washington never gets anything done. I would propose to you, friends, that may not be such a bad thing. <laughs> but the idea, though, for us as Americans to get our minds around this idea of Christ as our king is, is completely foreign to us. I mean, because kings, you know, think, what does a king elicit in your mind? Oppression and somebody who wears fancy clothes but sort of lives in an ivory tower, literally. Somebody who's a despot, who is oppressive. That's what we think of when we think of a king. But nothing could be further from the truth from the biblical understanding of what a king is and does. Listen to this. Biblically speaking, listen, the king represented his people. Biblically speaking, the king was the nation. Biblically speaking, the king, not just symbolically, but really represented everything about the people, that, about the nation of Israel. If you know anything about the Jewish monarchy, and it's in Kings and Chronicles in the Old Testament, for a lot of people it's boring stuff. It's great stuff, because what you see is this very point. When the king is good, the Jews flourish, and when the king is no good, they tank. My point is this. Biblically speaking, if you've got to understand this idea of Christ the king, you've got to understand something critically important. In the Jewish mind, the king is not your oppressor. He is your advocate. The king is not your, is not your crusher. He is your representative. The king is your hero, biblically speaking. And when he succeeds, you succeed. And when he fails, you fail. So let me ask you this. In other words, the king represents the highest ideals of your heart. So let me ask you a question. Who is your king? Who is your king? It's probably the person sitting in your chair, if you're like most people. Most of us like to think of ourselves as our own man, our own woman, our own person. We are the one who calls the shots. And if it's not, if you're not your own king, you wouldn't admit that, obviously, but for most people, that's probably true. But how many of us look to other people, or our friends, or our spouses, or our children, or our jobs, or our wealth, or whatever it is, man, fill in the blank. I don't care what it is. The thing I want you to see here, this is critically important to today, is that the king is the person, place, or thing that represents the highest aspirations of your heart. The things you strive for, the things you crave. That's what a king does. That's who a king is, biblically. So my point number two, then, is if Christ is our king, and I'm going to get to that in a second, what does he do? Well, the first thing the king does is he saves his people. Biblically speaking, the first job of a king is to save his people. See, Jesus is not just our example of a guy who does nice things to people, right? He's not just our example. He is our savior. Let me show you something. One of the things, if you're new to Christianity or you've never thought about this before, I want you to consider something that the high-water mark of Christ's ministry on earth, his highest achievement, his crowning moment, 
His greatest victory is not some political uh, victory, some big military conquest, no. Christ's biggest victory, scripturally, is the cross. Right there. Christus Rex. That's what that cross is, Christus, cross is called, by the way. Christ, that is not a crucifix. That is Jesus raised from the dead. He's very much alive in that image right there. His eyes are open. He's resurrected, and he's wearing a crown. You'll see it when you come up for communion. His greatest victory, Christ's greatest victory, is the cross. Seemingly defeated, right? I love Pontius Pilate. Guy was adult and also not a very good politician. That's how he wound up in Judea in the first place. But Pontius Pilate, when, he had, when Christ was crucified, Pilate put across the top of the um, cross on the titulus, the charge for the crime. Jesus Nazareus Rexus Aiudeum, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Herod meant it as a mockery. But God got the last laugh, didn't he? God always gets the last laugh, man. Because as the nails are pushed into Christ's hands, as he is bound up and raised on the cross, and the nails are pushed through his feet, as he is lifted up upon the cross, listen, Jesus does what the kings were always supposed to do and failed. He represents his people. He represents the Jews. He represents you on that cross before God our Father. He takes your sin and mine upon himself, and there he is on the cross offering his life for yours, taking on your identity onto himself, doing what the king was always supposed to do. He does it. And if you don't believe me, I'll give you one verse of many. Listen to this. Isaiah 53, verse 5 prophecy about Christ's death on the cross. You've heard this before. Listen to it again. Christ, Isaiah says, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And with his stripes, we are healed. You see my point? The king of the Jews is not just some fancy title. It means that he actually takes upon himself all the trash that enslaves and burdens you and me. And he offers himself in your place and in mine before the Father. Christ the King reigns not on a throne, but on a cross. Not with a crown of gold, but with a crown of thorns. Impaled, naked, and shamed. And there he pays the Christ the price for our sins by taking them upon himself. You know, there's a seeming um, paradox to human beings. You know, on the one hand, God gives us free will, right? We have the ability to choose or not choose him. He lays that out for us. God's plan is for you and I to choose to love him. But by definition, if he wants you to love him, he has to allow you not to. I said this morning in the rector's forum, I asked my wife to marry me 24 years ago, right? Proof that there's a sucker born every minute because she said yes. But what if, but what if, what if I had, I don't know, locked her in a closet and fed her flies until she said yes, right? Something crazy. And she says yes, right? Is that love? No, that's coercion. In other words, love, if God's plan is for us to love him, he must by definition allow us not to. If he gives us free will, the ability to choose right from wrong because he wants love, he must give us the ability not to. And for while God wants us to love him for his sake, 
problem is, and you know this, we can't do it perfectly. Neither, you can't, neither can I. No, no joke there, no surprise. God wants us to love him for his sake. The problem is we can't do it. No matter how hard you try, no matter how hard I try, I fail. And that God wants to save us. How do you solve this problem? You give people free will, you ex- but, you, but you require perfection in them. How do you solve this problem if you're God? Well, there's only one way, and here's how he did it. God became a man, he became a king, and the judge takes the penalty himself. It's the only way to both protect human free will and satisfy the requirements of justice. Our God, friends, Christ our King, our God is a God who saves. Saves you. Saves me. Offers that to you. So here's my question. And this is a a really big one. (laughs) Is Christ your King? Not a King. Your King. Do you really trust Him to save you? Do you really believe that He can? For a lot of people, the answer is no. Do you believe that He will? Is he your king? Because, see, the king represents his people. And Christ the king represents you and me by taking our sins upon himself and setting us free for them by paying the penalty in our place to save us, hence a savior. So a king, the first thing a king does is he saves his people. He represents them before God and he takes the, takes the, the, the penalty for our, on our behalf. But the second thing the king does is not just save us, he also protects us. I want to show you this. You know that after Christ is, uh, dead on, uh, dies on the cross, he is resurrected from the dead. This is Easter. We all know the story. I hope you do. And he is on earth for 40 days, and he ascends back to heaven from whence he came, where he sits even now on his throne. But he's not done. He ain't finished yet, at least according to him. Because if you listen to what Christ says, he says, I am going to, I'm going to, Back to the Father, I will send you the Holy Spirit to you, the church, who will hold you together, but I'm coming back to get you all. I'm coming back. And for the next four weeks in Advent, we're going to talk about Christ's second coming. Because what Jesus says is when he returns, from, when he returns the dead, those who have died up until now, anybody you know we prayed for a couple weeks ago in the Requiem, Christ says all of these people will be resurrected from the dead with new physical bodies like he had at the resurrection. And if you think this is fanciful and crazy thinking, I would submit to you this. This is what Jesus tells us. So either he tells the truth or not. If he tells the truth, you've got to believe him, even if it is, as my grandfather said, well, that's exactly what he said, very hard to believe. (laughs) And Jesus says, when I come back, I'm coming back to get you all. And he says, when when the the king returns, he will separate the sheep from the goats. I don't know anything about goats or sheep. I don't know nothing. I like goat cheese. That's it. That's all I got. But I I do know, I do know this, because I read about it. In the first century, sheep were not the fuzzy things we have now. Sheep and goats were actually about the same color. And so uh, a shepherd had to really look to tell them apart. Goats didn't have horns and sheep weren't white. I don't know why. Look it up. Google it. But the shepherd had, at night, the shepherd had to separate the sheep from the goats. Why? Sheep can take the cold weather overnight. Goats can't. So every night the shepherd will come out, and he knows, because he knows these critters, 
the sheep from the goats, and he pulls them out, and he separates the sheep from the goats. The thing I want you to understand about that, which is an implication, but really important, is that the sheep and the goats live together. The sheep, of course, are the metaphor for Christians. Why? I don't know, but it is. Sheep are Christians, and goats are non-Christians. And I want you to understand something critical here. What Jesus is saying is, look, look, here's the deal. Until I come back, y'all are going to have to live together. Y'all will live together. The sheep and the goats will live side by side. The righteous and the unrighteous will be side by side. You ever somebody ask you this? You know, man, I don't know why bad things always happen to good people. You ever heard that before? Yes? Anybody? You ever wonder, why do bad things happen to good people? Sounds smart. It's actually an incredibly stupid thing to say. And the reason is this. The reason that bad things happen to good people is because the world has fallen and broken. And quite frankly, none of us is really all that good anyway. But secondly, if you are a Christian and you are made good by the blood of Christ in your place on the cross, friends, you live alongside goats. Right? Is that true? We live with goats. And those goats can become sheep if they decide to do it. There's no, there's no exclusion here. Christianity is not an exclusive religion by any stretch, except for one thing, you've got to accept the gift he offers. We as Christians are sheep that live with the goats. And people will cry out, Oh Lord, how long? How long? When are you finally going to fix this mess for crying out loud? When are you going to do something about this mess we're in? Well, Jesus says something this morning I want to challenge you on. He says, remember this idea that we are in Christ. He is our representative. He says this. He says, look, what you do for the least of my brothers, look at it again, what you do for the least of my brothers, you do for me. That Greek word for brothers is the word adelphoi, Philadelphia, right? City of brotherly love. Adelphoi is not a word that means people in general. It means Christians. Whoa. Jesus doesn't say, when you do nice things to people, I reward you and I give you a pat on the head and say, welcome to my kingdom. That's not what he says. He says, those who do good to the church are doing good to me. Why? Because he owns us. He is our shepherd. And Jesus says, I identify with my people and when you are kind to my people, to Adelphoi, you do it for me. And when Christ returns, he says, he will execute judgment between the sheep and the goats. The sheep who choose to follow him. Being a sheep or a goat is a choice that every person has to make. The sheep that choose to follow him, he will say, come to me, all are blessed of my father. Those who have chosen to let me take your sin, I will take it and I welcome you into heaven. Those who say thanks but no thanks, God honors their decision and they will spend eternity without him. And I'm going to say this too. This is a super important point. We had the rector's forum this morning and everybody got squirrely about this. This idea of God as a judge. You know, we like, we like gentle Jesus, meek and mild, which quite frankly doesn't exist. Read this again. We like gentle Jesus, meek and mild. We like Jesus, the good shepherd. We like Jesus from the Beatitudes. But what about Jesus as the judge? We don't like that. We like Jesus who's nice. A we, like a, we like a tamed Jesus. But judge? Heaven and hell? We're going to talk about this for the next couple of weeks, but I, I want to just challenge you on something. This is very important. 
You get ups- we get upset about God as a judge. I want you to consider the opposite. I want you to consider a God who did not judge. Imagine a, imagine a God, imagine a Jesus who does not judge. Imagine a God who, I don't know, sees the plight of 12-year-old Thai girls working in sex trafficking rings. And the people are arrested. And God says, oh man, can't you just cut on some slack? Can't we all just get along? Is that good? Say your, say your house gets broken into and somebody, I don't know, I'm, I'm using an extreme example, but I'm going to use it anyway. Say somebody breaks into your house and kills your family. And the person is caught and convicted and brought to court. And the judge says, hey, Rodriguez, man, can't we all just get along? Don't worry about it. Come on. In January of this year, Boko Haram, a Nigerian Islamist group, beheaded a pastor named Lawan Andimi after he refused to recant his Christian faith. Imagine a God who just shrugged his shoulders and said, well, oh, fiddly dee, right? Imagine a judgeless God. Imagine a God who did not judge evil, who saw the suffering of this world and shrugged his shoulders and said, well, that's just too bad. Would a God without justice be a good God? Would a, God, would a, would a justiceless God be a God of love? Would a justiceless God be a God worth worshiping? You might recoil at the idea of, G- of Jesus as your judge, but friends, imagine the alternative. It's far more terrifying. A God who does nothing to protect his people is <laughs> not a God that I would be interested in worshiping. Friends, today we celebrate Christ, our King, our representative, our hero, our, ad- our advocate, who dies on the cross to save us, but also promises something assuring, that when he returns, the world will be set to rights. A king whose kingdom is not of this world, but will be. A king who invites the entire world to get on the Jesus train. It's up to us. Take it or leave it. A king who invites the entire world to be his. But the choice is ours. The choice is yours. The choice is mine. Is Christ your king? Shall we pray, Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that you have... He has come to earth to be our king, to represent us before you, to make us good by his death on the cross in our place, to make us worthy to stand before you. Father, teach us to follow our king, to model our lives in thanksgiving for what he's done for us as we wait for his return when he will put all things to rights. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.